And we'll pick up our lesson with the 19th verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Now, I want us to notice this verse. It says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. We must read verse 20 as well. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Now then, when we talk about the creature here, I believe that it speaks of the creation as a whole. That it has to do not only with the fall of man, but all that was subjected to the fall, the vanity. And uh, if, if you uh, study back in the book of Genesis, you'll know because of the fall that certain things happened to this earth. And certain things happen to all the creation of this earth. Not only the earth itself, you remember that God said because of sin and because of the curse uh, upon uh, Adam, he said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. It's a part of the curse of the fall. A man became a sinner. He had transgressed against God's law. He was going away from God. God found Adam in the garden, and he clothed him with coats of skin, provide for salvation. But before that, he said, uh, you're going to have to live under the curse, and you're going to have to earn your bread by the sweat of your face. And he said, also, the ground is going to be cursed for your sake, and it'll bring forth thorns and thistles. Before that, I, I guess it had no thorns and thistles. And then also we know that Beast creation, There's, there was an enmity between all of beast creation. And the reason we know that to be true is because, if you'll remember, in the book of Isaiah, it speaks of the time when the curse will be lifted from the earth, that the wolf and the, and the lamb will lie down together, and the lion and the ox will eat straw. And uh, the, there will be that enmity between beast creation that will be removed. So not only is the earth subject to the, to the curse... But all of the creation, everything upon this earth, uh, because of the fall of man, all of the uh, had its the fall had its effect upon everything. And I believe that is what it's talking about when it says the the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. When the sons of God are manifested, when Christ comes, when they are revealed in all their fullness, when all of God's children are glorified, then that creation will be reinstated too. All of the animal creation, all of the uh, vanity that has happened to this earth, and it tells us that the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. It, there was no reason for it on the part of the creation itself, but because of the fall of man. And it says, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, there's hope for that creation as well as for man. In verse 21 it says, because the creature itself also shall be delivered. All of creation shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That liberty that the children of God, that glorious liberty that they will receive when Christ comes again, will also be the, the time that all of creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. In other words, all of 
the curse upon creation will be de- will be uh, brought about at that particular time. When is it? When the manifestation of the liberty of the children of God takes place. When you and I not only have it, we our soul is redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our bodies will be, if we live long enough, we will die and be buried. And if we do not live till Christ comes again, uh, uh, I mean, if we do live till Christ comes again, I should say, then we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Nevertheless, at that time of Christ appearing, the resurrection will take place, won't it? And then the dead in Christ will uh, be glorified and the living believers glorified. So that will be the glorious liberty of the children of God that we're looking forward to. Now it says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Now then, Paul, I believe here, is using some language that rather emphasizes that if all of creation could be known to travail and groan in pain, it would be seen in that way. It would be known uh, in that way. That the, the whole creation is so subject to the curse that there's groaning and travailing. We might say, well, how can uh, the earth itself, how can it groan and travail in pain? Uh, we might say even how do the beasts groan and travail in pain? How does all of God's creation do this? Well, I believe the language is rather poetic, that if it could be known how the earth, under the sentence of the curse, could express itself, though some parts of it may not be able to do so, while other parts may very well be able to groan and travail in pain. We don't even know uh, that certain plants, certain things of, our, uh, of the nature of plants, like trees and flowers, we do not know that they do not feel a sense of that curse. We say, well, they are all without feeling. They're not like animals, and they're not like human beings. But we know that they die. We know that there's life there. What kind of feeling a plant has when it grows or a tree has when it grows or when it when you pluck the fruit off an, an apple tree or an orange tree we do not know what kind of uh, things happen to that plant or tree but uh, I'm sure it's not in any wise to be compared with the way a person feels or the way uh, animal creation feels at the stroke of pain But nevertheless, the language here that Paul uses is that the whole creation, not only man, but all of God's creation, groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And the reason I believe it's talking about all of the creation, other than man, as it says in verse 23, and not only they, and not only, if you'll notice, it's uh, the word they is in italics, but not only all of creation. It would not have to refer to they as persons, but they as the creation of God. So it says, and not only, but ourselves also. So it's pointing out that not only all of creation groans and travails in pain, but it says ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Ourselves would have reference to, to redeemed men and women and boys and girls, wouldn't it? ourselves that already have received the first fruits of the Spirit. All of those who are born again children of God. Now, we received the first fruits of the Spirit when we were first born again. 
The Holy Spirit came in to our hearts and lives. The Bible tells us, you read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, "...in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise." And it says, which is the earnest. That's the earnest to us, isn't it? The earnest or guarantee to us, the promise, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. We're waiting for that redemption of the purchased possession. We have received the first fruits of the Spirit. So that that Holy Spirit within us, uh, we ourselves... Grown within ourselves, it says, the 23rd verse. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, to wit the redemption of our body. We ourselves, as reference to all who are children of God, all who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, all who have been saved and born again, because we're born of the Spirit, we're sealed with the Spirit, we're to be led by the Holy Spirit, we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So, understanding that, what is the Spirit's work in us now? It is the Spirit recognizes the fact, the Holy Spirit within us, that in this body we're grown and we, we travail uh, within ourselves. And we're waiting we're waiting for that which He has given us the promise and the guarantee of, waiting for the redemption of our body. And, of course, God in His grace has given us the, His presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Until that day does come, we have the Holy Spirit abiding within us. So that's part of His work. I'm sure that because of this groaning and travailing that we have within ourselves, while we're waiting for the redemption of our body, while we're waiting for the coming of Christ, if you want to put it that way, when it will be done, that the Holy Spirit is our comforter, and the Holy Spirit is our guide, and the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, and the Holy Spirit is our assurance that that day will come. So in the midst of all the sufferings and the weaknesses and the infirmities of the flesh, the trials of this life, we have something deep within that tells us to just wait, put up with it, I will help you to overcome it, as the trials come, I will lead you through all the tribulations, and someday you'll be delivered from this body of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we're waiting, we're waiting, though we're groaning, we're waiting for the redemption of our body. And we won't have long to wait. When Jesus comes again, it will be brought about. Now, that may be to some a long time, but I'm sure that the time is nearer and closer than we even imagine. But that's what's going to take place. You see, our soul has already been redeemed. We already have salvation. We speak of the salvation of the soul. In other words, we are already saved. We're already redeemed. But we're waiting for our complete redemption. Because if only this condition that existed did not affect our future, our bodily resurrection, and our eternal glory then we could not realize the fullness of it, could we? But we can realize the fullness of it because it guarantees not only the redemption of our soul, which has already taken place, but it guarantees all the future 
a glory with God, and it guarantees the resurrection of our body. Jesus said, He that believeth on me, him will I raise up at the last day. And he says, I, time and time again, the sixth chapter of John, he says, I will raise him up again at the last day. So it speaks of the resurrection of all believers. <clears throat> now then, let's hurry on and look at verse uh, 24. It says, For we are saved by hope. Now, does that mean that our soul is saved by hope? We're already saved in one sense of the word. But here it says we're saved by hope. What kind of hope is it speaking about? Here's a hope that is expecting this redemption of the body. And it doesn't mean that uh, because we're expecting it that that saves us, but it means that we have to wait and expect it in order for it to be done. In other words, we're looking forward to it. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what did he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then, notice, do we with patience wait for it. You see, the Lord has put in our hearts a desire, the word hope in the Bible means desire and expectation. It's not like you and I would hope that something happens, that we have no uh, guarantee that, that it will happen. You would say, I hope that it turns out this way. Well, we might, it might turn out that way for us, and then it might not turn out that way. That's a hope that is based upon man's way of desiring something that may or may not happen. But this hope is a desire and expectation, expectation because God has promised it that it will be that way. See, it's a blessed hope. It, it rests upon the surety of Christ's coming, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we have because we know He's coming. It's the promise of His coming. So then with this desire and with this expectation, we expect Christ to come, we believe He's going to come, and then that gives us patience to wait for the time that this redemption will take place. See, we wouldn't have patience to wait for it were it not for that. That's why it says you're saved by hope, because we're, we're waiting. We're waiting patiently. God has promised it. We desire it. We can cer certainly and truly expect it because it is called that blessed hope. The promise is that Christ will return and that he will resurrect those dead bodies in the grave, those that are the dead in Christ spoken of, those that are asleep in Jesus. He will change all the living believers. And that's that hope we're looking for. And it is closely tied with, well, it is involved. It, it is, I should say, the second coming of Jesus Christ, because that's when it will take place. So we wait for it with patience. At the same time we're waiting for it, we're waiting for him. We're waiting for the redemption of the body, but we're waiting for Christ because the body will not be redeemed till he comes. You see, when we die, we go to, to the grave. The body goes to the dust. But we go to be, our spirit goes to be with God, the Bible teaches. Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But what about that body that's in the grave? The Bible tells us that, that Christ, at his coming, is going to redeem those bodies. And they're going to be uh, glorified bodies. And he's going to reunite our spirit and soul with that body so that we'll have life minus the corruptible element. He's going to make them glorified bodies so that they'll no longer be subject to decay or corruption. And that's why the Bible says this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. 
That has to do with the body. This is a corrupt body. This is a mortal body. And it must put on incorruption and immortality. And that's what we're looking for. It doesn't make any difference where you're buried or if you're burnt to ashes. If your body is in the depths of the sea or if you're scattered by, to the four winds. If the, the dust of your body or the ashes of your body were scattered all over the country. God is able to regather and reunite and bring back together all of those elements and give you a glorified body and resurrect you. And that's what he's going to do, according to this promise. Someone might say, well, how can God bring all the particles of that body together and, and make them minus corruption and glorify them and reunite the spirit and the soul to that body? He was able to take the original dust of the earth, take the dust of the earth, and he formed man. And he breathed into that lump of clay, if you want to call it that, or that formation of dust of the earth, the clay of the earth. He breathed, breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So that you and I are living human beings because of the fact of God's great creation of man. Now, some do not believe the story of God's creation as we find it in the book of Genesis, but I believe that the Bible speaks of just exactly like it was, that God gave life to man. And uh, he gave life to other things as well. Created the beasts of the field, everything that has life, he gave the life. But especially man became a living soul in a, in a different way than all of the beast creation have life. They have life, but they are not a living soul. And they're not, they do not have that which will be returned to God. The spirit of the beast goeth downward to the earth when it dies, but the spirit of man goeth upward, the Bible says. You read in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now then, let's begin with verse 26 quickly and notice some things here. Likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. That's our weaknesses, our uh, problems, our trials, everything that's weak about us. If you'll notice, it says the spirit also. If the spirit has to do with our resurrection bodies, which it does say in the past verses. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, verse 23, and we're waiting until the earnest of our inheritance, which he is sealed within us, is brought to pass at the coming of Christ for the redemption of our bodies. So we see another work in verse 26. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmity. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Now, if you'll notice this verse, it says, we know not what. Look at that word, what. The original indicates that it's the direct article before the word what. That means that it's, we just really do not know the what to pray for as we ought. Sometimes we come to the Lord in prayer and we do not know how to express ourselves in prayer. We know that within our heart there are certain desires and expectations. There are certain uh, needs. But the Spirit Himself, it says itself here, but He is a person. The Spirit Himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit puts into words that God understands things that we're not able to really utter or explain because we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. And it says because he, uh, 
And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. God searches the hearts. He knows what's the mind of the Spirit. Because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. A lot of things we would pray for might not even be according to the will of God. But the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us and makes those things presentable to the Father so that he will answer our prayers. So he's the one that helps our infirmities, our weaknesses. Now then, verse 28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Here's something that brings us great assurance, because we do not think that all things work together for good. We do not hope that they will, as if we just hope that they would, and maybe they would not. Maybe we doubt that they would work together. But it says we know, look at that, and we know that all things work together for good. It's God that makes them work together. It's God that makes them work together for good. And he wants us to know it, to know it regardless of what these things are. Sometimes we might say, well, how can these things that are bad to me, or I think to be bad, I think to be wrong, I think to be trials and testings, how can these be for good? The Bible says that God says they're working together for good. Now, that's hard for us to see when things are kind of different than we would imagine them to be, isn't it? It's hard for us to see when things are going contrary to uh, the nature of things. And we think that everything's out of kelter and everything's against us. Remember old Jacob? He said, all these things are against me. And when he said that, God was working for his good. Now, when we... When this old flesh cries out, well, this is surely against me. This is surely not for me. This is surely a stroke in the wrong direction. This is to put me down. This is to defeat me. But God says it's working together for good. Even our trials, our tribulations, our problems. Well, at the time, it doesn't seem that it's good. But God's going to bring good out of it. And we know that. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we could trust this verse as it should teach us to? Then we wouldn't worry about anything, would we? We'd say that whatever happens, whatever comes or goes, whatever ups or downs in life, whatever trials or sufferings, that God has a purpose in it, and he's making it for good to them that love God. If we really love God, it's for our good. To them who are the called according to his purpose. So God is working something out of it. Then it says in verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among, among many brethren. Now then, we are to be conformed to the image of God's Son. God foreknew, he did predestinate, and he wants us to finally be just like Jesus. But how will this be brought about? He's working that in us now. We will not realize the fullness of that working until we are actually in the image of his Son, until we've been taken to heaven and are in the presence of Christ and all this, all the sins of ourself and all the sins of this earth uh, and all the frailties are left behind. We will not realize that perfect image, but then it will be. But let's read verse 30 because it's definitely connected so much that we couldn't separate them. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. I want us to look at this very quickly. First of all, he says, those that he did predestinate, he called. Now then, the word called here 
as in the New Testament everywhere, speaks of a calling, not that the call of the gospel just goes out through the preaching of it in general, but those that are called effectually, those that listen to it and hear it, and are called to be his and accept him. You see, there's the general call. You might say that goes out through the preaching of the gospel. When, when you have great crowds and congregations of people and you give the call of the, the gospel, says, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. It says, Christ died for our sins. It says, whosoever believeth in him. Well, men hear that with their ears, don't they? They're really being called, but that's in the general sense of the word. But the one that's really called is the one that the Holy Spirit brings that message home personally to him. And he says, yes, that's for me. And God calls him by his grace, and he really receives Christ. And he says, those that he called, and they're really saved, he says, them he also justified. Being called, being actually born again, children of God, being saved by the grace of God, he... He classifies us, marks us down in this condition as, as just as if we had never sinned, that we, he's also justified. And notice it says, in whom he justified, then he also glorified. In God's view and mind and purpose, it's already done. You know, if we were waiting for the time element, we'd stop with justified because that's all we are now. We're not yet glorified, but God looks at it as one now. It's all in the present tense to God. You see... To, to you and I, being glorified is what? In the future, isn't it? That's the future. We haven't been glorified yet as far as you and I experiencing. But as far as God is concerned, he called us, he justified us, and he glorified us because he sees the eternal future right now in the present. He sees it as one big now. And um, as God sees it in that way... <clears throat> So shall it be when the time comes that we will experience it. But in his mind and purpose, it's already done. Then in verse 31, it says, What shall we then say to these things? How would we answer these things? If all of these wonders... You might go back and just summarize everything we've studied in the chapter that were, of course, saved by Christ's sacrifice. If you wanted to go back far enough, like verse 3, we're redeemed from the law. We're saved by the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. God has made us a new creature. We walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We have the promise of that Spirit raising us up again in the last day. And I'm just kind of following down through the verses. And we're led by the Spirit of God. We're the sons of God. We've received the Spirit of adoption. We cry, Father, Father, and we have the Holy Spirit to bear witness with ourselves that we are the children of God, we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We're waiting for the redemption of our body that we've studied tonight, and we're also being helped in our infirmities by the Holy Spirit, and especially in the matter of prayer, and we are assured that all things work together for our good. And we know that God has foreknown and predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his Son. We know that he's called us, that he's justified us, that he will yet glorify us, but in his mind it's already done. What shall we then say? Look at verse 31 now. What shall we then say to these things? In other words, we've studied so much and looked at so many wonderful truths that what could we say? It's a fact that God is for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? If all of this, in fact, if you'd read it this way, since God be for us, it's not a question 
if, if you notice the Scripture, it says, if God be for us. In other words, if, based upon the fact that we know that He is, and since He is already. If this all be true that God is for us, and since it is true that He is for us, if God be for us, then who can be against us? See, it's already proven. It's not asking the question now, if God is for you. It's just saying, if this all is true, and since it all is true, and since God is for us, then who can be against us? That's the meaning of it, the sense of it. And all of this is true concerning us. Well, then who can be against us? In other words, God is on our side. We're on God's side. And God is on our side. He has taken up our case in its fullness, and He's on our side. Now then, it says in verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Look at that. God did that great work of delivering Christ up. He delivered him, gave, gave him to this world. He, and Jesus came into this world, his only begot, God's only begotten Son. Jesus died on the cross. God permitted him to be delivered to the cross. It was in the purpose and plan of the Father and the Son. <laughs> to bring about Christ's death on the cross for our salvation. And if God loved us so much and delivered him up for us all, then surely he will, with him, since he's given us him, he will give us all things. He wouldn't hold back anything then that's for our good, would he? If he'd do this greatest thing and give the greatest sacrifice and manifest the greatest love, surely he would not uh, discontinue his love to us now. He wouldn't. Say, well, I've delivered Christ, I've delivered my son up for their salvation, and now I'm going to let them make it on their own. You think that's like? No, this verse says it's different. He will surely give us all things, and freely give us all things. If he gave us the greatest thing, surely he'll give us the other necessary things for our complete and eternal salvation. That's what Paul is speaking about here. Then he says in verse 33, Who shall lay anything... To the charge of God's elect, it is God that justifies. If God justifies us, then who's going to accuse us and charge us? Who's going to charge any child of God if God says they're justified? What right would a man have, or an angel, a fallen angel, or, or the devil himself have to accuse us, though the devil does accuse us? What right would he have if God justifies us? He has no right and he won't do any good by doing it, will he? So look at the next verse. Who is he that condemns us? Someone might condemn us. But it says, it is Christ that died. Christ died for our sins. Then why should someone condemn us? Yea, rather that is risen again. He, he rose again for our justification. Why should someone condemn us? Who is even at the right hand of God. He ascended to the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. He makes intercession for us, as well as back in verse 26, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for the saints, for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In verse 27, he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You see that? So if he does, Christ also makes intercession for us. Then who in the world is going to condemn us? If Christ died for sins, if Christ rose again for our justification, if Christ ascended to heaven to there make intercession for us, then who would have the nerve to condemn one of God's children? You see, no one. The answer is obvious, isn't it? That if Jesus would not condemn us, He died for us. 
if he rose again to justify us, if he ascended on high to ever live and make intercession for us, then who is he that condemneth? And then quickly, we'll have to get into the next verse. It says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? You might say, well, these are things. You might say, what will separate us? But it says, who, what, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword. It says in verse 36, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Even though we're in trouble and we're killed all the day long, and that may, may or may not literally mean killed. In some instances, many were killed. But we are in the minds of many and in the words of many. We're killed just as by their accusations and all. And we're just accounted as sheep for the slaughter. They just assume we would be killed. But it says, Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Whether we're killed by slander, whether we're killed by opposition, or whether we're killed literally as martyrs, we're still conquerors. Those that were martyrs were conquerors. We haven't yet gone that far, have we? But we're killed, in a sense of the word, for his sake, all the day long as God's children. And it doesn't say we're just merely conquerors, but we're more than conquerors. Through him that loved us, because of his love, we're more than conquerors. Now then, getting back to verse 35, who shall separate us? We'll get from that separating. Shall tribulation separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? No, we may go through much tribulation. Shall distress separate us? We may be in much distress. Or persecution separate us? Or famine, if we're hungry? And if there's no food anywhere to be found, will that separate us? Will our nakedness, we have no clothing, our peril, our sword, any kind of perils. Paul speaks of the perils that he was in. He speaks of being hungry, speaks of being uh, in need of clothing. And it says in verse 38, to sum it up, For I'm persuaded, Paul says, there's not a doubt in my mind. He was persuaded concerning these things that neither death nor life. Now, look at the very broad and great extent of all these things that Paul speaks of. He says, death will not separate me, nor life, there's nothing in life, nor angels. And if he speaks of angels here, he may have reference to the fallen angels that would, would uh, be like demons that would come and haunt us. Nor principalities, nor powers, this would have to do with the devil's uh, rule and reign, you know, the principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness, Paul says in Ephesians, in high places, these evil influences of Satan and Satan himself, he will not be able to separate us. <coughs> and he says, nor things present, anything now, nor anything in the future, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Paul says, if you can think of anything that would separate us, nothing can shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I'm persuaded that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And I'm glad that he gives us this assurance. We might think, well, there's something in life, there's something in death, there's something in persecution, there's something the devil can do. And Paul sums it all up and says, no, any other creature. So just think of anything you want to and add it, and it will not be able or they will not be able, or he will not be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's stand together for a word of prayer.